This time, though, for Legally Speaking here on CFAX 1070, joined, as always, by Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Good morning, Michael. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. Interesting times in British Columbia's courts as we continue to weather COVID-19. Yes, it uh, doesn't seem to be slowing the uh, Court of Appeal down uh, one bit. They're back in business by Zoom and are issuing uh, judgments at a uh, pretty good clip. Um, one of the cases uh, that uh, was just released uh, yesterday, um, I think, is an important one for people to know about, and it raises some uh, important uh, adult issues in terms of uh, consent to sexual activity and how that, uh, how that works. Um, so I think this is an important uh, case that we may uh, hear more of in the future. Um, the particular fact pattern that was being considered uh, at uh, trial and then on this appeal uh, were two people who met online on a dating service. They had met once in person uh, and then they agreed to meet up again a few days later, uh, went over to the accused's uh, house, uh, where the uh, complainant uh, indicated uh, that she was consenting to um, sexual activity but wanted uh, there to be a condom used. Um, that was used on a first occasion, and then on a second occasion in the middle of the night, uh, the two kind of rolled over <laughs> and uh, engaged in um, further uh, activity. Um, and on that occasion, it would appear that no condom uh, was used. When the complainant realized that, she became uh, upset. Uh, and it led to a charge of sexual assault. Uh, at trial, uh, the uh, accused was acquitted uh, on what's called a no-evidence motion, which is a, something that's worth pointing out. Mm -hmm. The way a no-evidence motion would work is at the end of the Crown's case, uh, if uh, the uh, accused alleges that there is no evidence on a critical uh, point uh, for a conviction, a judge can at that point uh, acquit the accused without putting the accused to the burden of deciding whether they wish to call evidence. Here, that's, that sort of application was made, uh, and the argument was, look, uh, the complainant consented to the uh, activity, and the fact that the condom wasn't used on the second occasion uh, didn't uh, vitiate that consent, uh, and the argument was that there was no fraud engaged in here. The person, the accused, hadn't claimed that he was using the condom, he simply didn't. Hmm. The judge granted the no-evidence motion, and so the accused was acquitted, and off the case went to the Court of Appeal. And that's the decision which came out yesterday. Now, the Court of Appeal is a three-judge panel. Interestingly, it was one man and two women, which is interesting. I haven't done a current count, but for some time we had a majority of women on the Court of Appeal, which is, I think, a good and interesting thing. Uh -huh. um, the uh, court was struggling with a, a case from a few years ago from the Supreme Court of Canada called Hutchinson. And that case had a straightforward but very interesting fact pattern that involved uh, consent to sexual activity on the condition that a condom be used, where the accused in that case had poked holes in the condom, making it completely ineffective, causing the complainant to become pregnant and eventually a conviction for aggravated sexual assault. Mm -hmm. That went all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, and the Supreme Court of Canada found that that activity of poking the holes in the condom um, had not uh, um, vitiated consent, that the, accused, that the complainant in that case had consented to the activity, but that action on the facts of that case amounted to fraud. And there's a provision in the criminal code that says that if you get consent based on fraud, that doesn't count as consent. 
And so it was on that basis that the accused was convicted uh, in Hutchinson. So the Court of Appeal uh, yesterday was struggling to apply that decision to the fact pattern, uh, uh, the recent one. Uh, And uh, one of the judges um, found that um, uh, he thought he could distinguish Hutchinson, that old that Supreme Court of Canada case with the holes being poked, uh, and uh, he concluded that uh, this was different from that, uh, and that the agreement to engage in the activity uh, was fundamentally different when the condom was not used, and therefore he found that there had been no consent to the activity, uh, and that there ought to have been a or there could have been a conviction on that basis. So he would send the matter back to a new trial. Uh, the next judge from the Court of Appeal, she took a different. She said, no, um, you can't really separate out that decision from the Supreme Court of Canada from the fact pattern in the current case, uh, and uh, there was consent to the activity. That's what she concluded. However, she found that that should have been analyzed pursuant to that that provision that deals with fraud. Uh, And um, her take on it was that uh, fraud... Uh, didn't uh, require what the trial judge uh, thought was required, that the sort of passive act of not informing the person uh, of the uh, failure to use the condom could amount to fraud, uh, and uh, the case ought to go back for retrial on that basis. So a completely different legal theory of it. The third Court of Appeal judge uh, uh, found that either of these things could be so, Uh, and so her take on it was that uh, she thought uh, it could be that this amounted to not being consent, but if that wasn't so, then it could be fraud, because each of the other two first judges thought the alternative theory didn't apply. So all of this is to say, uh, is to demonstrate just how complicated some of these difficult human issues can be. Um, and uh, I think the, the real takeaway for people is that um, there needs to be, uh, and this is important, affirmative agreement and consent uh, to um, uh, sexual activity, uh, and uh, particularly in some of these relationships, like in this one, which seem to have a length of two or three hours, yes. uh, there should be some particular caution uh, used to make sure uh, that uh, somebody you're engaged in this sort of activity with is genuinely consenting uh, to exactly what is going on. and. Well, it may not be realistic to expect people are going to have uh, contracts and so on in all of these human affairs, yes. uh, particularly in these uh, sort of short relationships, uh, if you could uh, characterize it in that way. Mm-hmm. There should be particular uh, effort made to ensure that uh, the people involved are clearly agreeing to and know what they're agreeing to and not to be assuming uh, that the other person is uh, probably okay with this or probably okay with that. Uh, in this case, the, uh, the evidence was um, uh, that the uh, accused had said something like, does that feel better on the second occasion? To which uh-huh. the complainant responded, yes. But of course, uh, there, it sounds like there's just a fundamental misunderstanding as to what uh, the, the individuals were trying to communicate to each other. So uh, well, there's a lot of legal complexity here in terms of, you know, what is consent and, you know, when can that be vitiated by fraud. Uh, the uh, the big takeaway for people is make sure that there's clarity, uh, because uh, if not, uh, you may find yourself in the Court of Appeal, uh, and it uh, would not be at all surprising if this case at some point wound up in the um, Supreme Court of Canada, 
given this um, just fundamental split on the Court of Appeal about yes. what that previous uh, Supreme Court of Canada case meant. I was going to ask, in the reasons for judgment, we know that it is the majority of the, the court that prevails in terms of having an appeal either granted or, or, or dismissed, but how much weight is put on the reasons that are attached to the dissenting side of the court that loses? Because ultimately that is not the argument or the reasoning that prevailed, and yet it is put into the record and is available to everyone to read nonetheless. So what weight do those words have? Well, that's a great question, and a great question particularly in the context of this case. Yes. Now, in this case, from the Court of Appeal, all three judges agreed uh, on the result. They all agreed the appeal should be allowed. So nobody was really dissenting, okay. but they all agreed for slightly different reasons, which can make things a little more complicated for those of us in the business when you're trying to predict, well, you know, what is the state of the law? What, yeah. what exactly is meant here? And that's challenging. And one of the reasons, or one of the things that the judges were uh, debating in their reasons here uh, is that the proper interpretation of that previous Supreme Court of Canada case with the holes being poked in the condom. Um, And that case had a majority decision uh, and a dissent. And the dissent in that case uh, was provided some language about what the majority was talking about and why they were uh, dissenting from it. And that formed part of the analysis that the uh, judges in the Court of Appeal here were using to try to interpret, well, what did the Supreme Court of Canada mean? You know, and is there any light uh, that can be shone between the concept of somebody using a intentionally uh, 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 damaged condom versus uh, using not using one at all? Uh, and, you know, how could that be distinguished from circumstances like well, what if somebody uses one that just turns out to be defective, but not intentionally so? Does that uh, eliminate consent? Hmm. Um, and so uh, when you start sort of drilling down at some of those uh, issues, it can be a, a challenge. But dissenting opinions, like in this case, both helped inform what the majority meant. Um, and you, you can also see uh, that uh, judges are alive to sort of how, that, uh, how the, uh, their dissent or minority opinion might have an impact should the matter be appealed further. Like, for example, the third judge from the Court of Appeal here uh, found that she would have uh, both been satisfied that there was no consent and <laughs> that this could amount to fraud, which was different from the other two. One who thought, well, this is only a lack of consent but not fraud. The second judge thought, well, this is fraud but doesn't interfere with consent because of what the Supreme Court of Canada said. And so that third judge uh, was uh, of the view that either of those things could apply. And that, of course, might be an eye to, well, what happens with this thing down the road if there's a a new trial, a conviction on one theory or the other, and then eventually the case goes off to the Supreme Court of Canada. So defense can be important. We saw it here both in terms of interpreting the majority view uh, and uh, judges with an eye to, you know, how might this be looked upon down the road. So they matter. Michael Mulligan with uh, Mulligan Defense Lawyers, helping us understand the latest legal issues in the news. Coming up in just a moment, B.C. Supreme Court permitting reporters to call in and listen to proceedings to maintain an open court in these COVID-19 times. We'll elaborate upon that right after this. We continue with Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, the B.C. Supreme Court permitting reporters to call in and listen to proceedings in these unprecedented times of COVID-19. Uh, yes, indeed. So all of the courts in British Columbia, the Provincial Court, the Supreme Court, and the Court of Appeal, uh, have all taken steps to try to open up as many uh, proceedings as are possible safely. 
uh, Court of Appeals using Zoom. The provincial court is going to start using um, uh, Microsoft Teams and has been conducting sentencings where possible by telephone. Uh, and the uh, B.C. Supreme Court, it, it frankly has some of the most challenging uh, things to deal with because that, of course, would be the court where things like jury trials would uh, uh, proceed, uh, which are at this point still not possible. Um, however, uh, the uh, B.C. Supreme Court is opening up uh, uh, to uh, hear uh, by video or telephone link, um, in addition to urgent uh, criminal matters, um, some family and civil cases that are also urgent. Uh, and one of the important things that has to be maintained, uh, and this is a, both a constitutional requirement for uh, criminal trials, you have a fair and public hearing, but uh, an important principle for all court proceedings um, is that they should be open and transparent. The public reporter should be able to scrutinize what we're doing up there every day. Uh, no good comes of uh, secret uh, justice. And so to that end, um, the B.C. Supreme Court has just announced a uh, protocol whereby accredited media will be able to uh, connect up to listen live to proceedings in court by telephone um, and some rules surrounding that. Um, one interesting thing for listeners to know about um, is that uh, while uh, media are permitted to uh, record uh, proceedings to ensure the accuracy of their reporting, uh, they're not permitted to uh, play the recordings. Like you could have a tape recorder if you're an accredited uh, reporter to record something and make sure that it's, or your phone probably these days, make sure that you're accurately reporting on something. Yes. Uh, those rules will still apply. So, uh, you know, all of this relies on um, the uh, professionalism of all the people involved. Uh, but it's another example of the uh, court trying to um, accommodate the current reality. Uh, while maintaining some of those important principles like uh, making sure the court process is open uh, and we're not up there doing things in secret. So that's the latest uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, protocol change from the B.C. Supreme Court. Reporters will be able to uh, call in and listen to proceedings and uh, keep us all honest up there. It is fascinating, though, that the uh, rules permitting the use of that recording are limited to verification purposes and not broadcast. We still haven't passed that threshold, it would seem. You're right, uh, and I think there's a scope for uh, perhaps uh, reconsidering that. Um, the concern are things like uh, interfering with witnesses, uh, feeling free to give evidence, not wanting people to be sort of, you know, grandstanding or things of that sort. Um, so, you know, th there are some, certainly some considerations there. Um, I, I would tend to uh, fall on the side of allowing more openness and uh, recording and playing of those things. Uh, as long as it can be done in a way that doesn't disrupt the proceedings. Um, and we've seen for many years how that works, uh, at least in the Supreme Court of Canada, having an automated uh, video system. Uh, they're recording the proceedings. Mind you, they're not dealing with uh, witnesses and so on. I, I think some of the concerns would be things like, you know, uh, intimidated witness testifying in a trial with the uh, video camera pointing at them might feel less uh, uh, free to give their evidence. But you know, all of these things are a weighing, and we need to weigh them up against uh, that uh, really important principle of uh, uh, openness and transparency. And uh, I tend to think the more of that we have 
the better off we are. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating situation because, in theory, any person may attend the courthouse in person and observe those proceedings. But in a practical sense, all people cannot because there is limited seating in the gallery in any courthouse and there are many, many more people out in the wide world than there are seats. So we never have real true broadcast, even though any person may choose to attend. And yet if we made it electronically available, that practical limitation disappears. Yeah, you're quite right. Uh, and I should say all courts are now equipped with um, sophisticated digital audio recording systems. And so um, if there was uh, an inclination to, or a decision made to permit uh, people to listen uh, to those things uh, either live or at the end of the day, um, that could be accomplished without having to spend money on equipment. Uh, there are already audio recordings that judges can use to you know, listen to evidence again if they needed to um, review a point or play things back for a jury if they ask for a particular piece of evidence to be replayed. And that same system is used when transcripts are uh, ordered. Um, so um, it wouldn't take much from a technolog technology point of view if there was a decision made that we should permit, um, permit that to be uh, listened to by the public. So um, I think that is something that needs consideration and uh, maybe in the COVID-19 environment, uh, that's the, the sort of uh, creative change we might see. Indeed. We have three minutes left in our segment today, Michael. We have another two stories that we could discuss. Would we like to focus on one or the other, or would we like to do both? Um, I think probably the, the family one has the most relevance to people, so I think that's one that I think is worth spending a couple of minutes on. Indeed. Um, so this was a decision out of the B.C. Supreme Court, and it was an application to uh, terminate spousal support. Um, uh, and in this case, the uh, parties involved were just short of 70 years of age when this application was made, um, and the person who had been paying uh, spousal support had been paying the spousal support for more than 20 years. Um, and uh, that person was a doctor, the person receiving it uh, had a real estate license but earned much less. Um, ultimately, the, uh, this, the application to terminate the payment of spousal support was permitted, um, and some of the things that the court reviewed there, I think, are important principles for people to be aware of. Uh, the court reviewed the fact that the uh, person had received some $700,000 in spousal support over the preceding 20 years, uh, and also uh, made the point that even though the person was now almost 70 who was receiving it, um, she had made uh, very little effort over the preceding 20-plus years to uh, get herself in a position of economic self-sufficiency. And so... I think the takeaway uh, for people who are uh, recipients of spousal uh, support um, is that you can't necessarily count on that going on forever. Um, depending on the circumstances of the parties, uh, it may well be an expectation uh, that a person eventually uh, become economically self-sufficient. And in this case, where the relationship had ended 26 years earlier uh, and the person receiving the payments had just not um, stayed in a job or uh, became become economically self-sufficient over that period of time, uh, the change of circumstances of the person paying, retiring, uh, and the uh, long time that had gone by was sufficient to see that cancelled. And so I think the important takeaway for people would be uh, if you're the recipient of those payments, don't necessarily count on them uh, going on forever and funding your retirement. At some point, uh, the expectation may be that you need to be uh, economically self-sufficient, and that was the outcome uh, in this particular case. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We appreciate your knowledge and insight as always, Michael. Thank you as always for your time, and we'll talk again next week. Thank you so much. I look forward to it. Have a great day. Bye now. Yeah.